If you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Acts 24. The year was 58 AD, about 25 years after the cross resurrection. The Apostle Paul, now in Caesarea, as uh, reflecting back, looking at it, it had been less than two weeks. Uh, think about all that we've looked at in the book of Acts to this point in the last few chapters, less than two weeks of his life since he had concluded his third missionary journey arrived in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, And looking back, (laughs) things had not gone well. We've talked about that. Uh, He'd been falsely accused uh, by the Jews at the temple, dragged out of the temple where they uh, were in the process of the Jews, uh, angry mob in the process of beating him to death. Uh, The commander at that point had come up and with the Roman troops and, and had pulled him out of what would have been a deadly situation, put Paul into custody, put him in chains. Uh, then after that, he attempted to address the Jews, <laughs> only for them to become enraged with him again, and uh, that didn't go well either. <laughs> he tried to share his testimony of Christ with them from the steps there of the Antonia Fortress. Then he was taken before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Israel, the religious, I call them the creepy religious guys, but they weren't all creepy. <laughs> They took him before the council, that, and that, it, it, that definitely didn't go well. The entire council uh, descended into utter chaos. <laughs> the soldiers had to pull him out of there to keep them from tearing him apart. So at that point, we read that, and I'm summarizing here because I want you to just catch the sequence of events that have led Paul to this moment, <laughs> sitting in Caesarea, waiting to go before Governor Felix. Uh, at that point, a group of 40 Jews, a couple of weeks ago we looked at it, they hatched this scheme that they were going to ambush Paul and murder him, probably with the, the Roman military escort that was, that, that was escorting him around. Uh, and it, had it not been for Paul's nephew, who somehow found out about it, went to the commander, they might have pulled it off. So at that point, as a result of all of that, the commander, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, uh, he, he'd had enough and <laughs> said, it's time for me to refer this guy's case to the governor in Caesarea. Uh, so last week we saw the commander, he, he assembled a prisoner escort of 470 soldiers. Brian, Brianus. <laughs> I've been thinking about that all week. <laughs> Brian brought that out and, and it was something that is just so striking. It's like you got 470 guys for one dude. You must be seriously wanting to get this guy safely to Caesarea. And he did. He knew that there were huge problems for him if he didn't pull it off. So uh, when he did, when he sent Paul to Caesarea, he, he included a heavily slanted, I might add, letter to the Roman governor, to Governor Felix. Uh, and in it, he truthfully declared that he couldn't find anything with which to charge Paul. He, he said he's not done anything that's deserving of imprisonment. <laughs> so, uh, but I also think that the reality uh, of it, I mean, from the time that he showed up with Paul and the, and the mob dragging him out of the temple, from that point until after this whole thing where these 40 Jews had sworn an oath to kill him <laughs> or they weren't going to eat or drink, which, yeah, the Bible doesn't tell us how that went. But I, I think the commander was, I think he was fed up. I think he was, he just was like, I got to get this guy out of my hair. So passed him off to the governor. Now we looked at also how from a human standpoint, this entire sequence of events from Paul's arrival in Jerusalem uh, up until now, as he's sitting there in Caesarea, it could have been seen from, again, from from a human perspective as an abysmal failure. Nothing had gone right. There was not one recorded conversion in Jerusalem for his time there. And all that he had had was trouble heaped upon trouble heaped upon trouble. But, but, as Brian pointed out last week, as he shared, in looking at these things from a biblical worldview, in looking at it through a biblical lens, we see that all of this, all of it was part of God's plan. Every bit of it. Uh, Jesus appeared to Paul. Remember, he appeared to him after all of the mayhem while he was still in the barracks uh, there in the Antonia Fortress on the Temple Mount. And he'd first encouraged Paul and said, cheer up, Paul. (laughs) Uh, it told him that he wasn't finished with him and that he was going to send him to Rome where he would testify of him there. By the way, that's the last 
part in the New Testament where we see red letters. <laughs> so just a, just a, that's free, no charge. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's the last time we see Jesus speaking himself in the first person. Uh, so Jesus says, look, I'm not finished with you. I'm sending you to Rome. And then immediately this whole thing with the plot to kill him and the ambush with the 40 guys and all that, all of that starts to unfold. And again, we see that God's divine hand is upon every one of these events, allowing not, he doesn't ordain evil, but he does allow it. And so through all of that, he is literally pushing Paul now towards Rome. The trip to Caesarea would be the first stage of what would be a more than two year harrowing journey. Uh, all the way to Caesar himself. So interesting stuff. Now, before we dive into the text this morning, I'm going to take some time. I want to look at the city of Caesarea. Uh, it's, it's a city that's situated on a, on a beautiful section of the, the west coast of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and it, it's, I want to take some time because you, I want you guys to catch the visual of what's going on here. Uh, first of all, Caesarea takes its name from Caesar Augustus. He was the guy that was in charge when Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus was a good buddy of a guy by the name of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was both a madman and a brilliant architect as well. Built things all over Palestine, uh, many of which are, are not even popularly known. Uh, Herodian, south of Jerusalem, is absolutely fabulous. Uh, but different places. So he was the one, he was the architect behind building this city, started it in 22 BC during the reign of Augustus, and it was not completed until after these events that we're reading about now came about. I mean, it was, it was a, a, an ongoing effort. So uh, the other thing about Caesarea is it was the regional capital of Palestine, uh, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, all of that area was governed from this city. Uh, it was also a cultural center. It was the military headquarters. It was this place. It was a, a well-known place. So in this first slide, I, I want to show you, it, it's very hard to come up with graphics that, that show uh, what the city would have looked like in the first century. And this is, it's not my favorite slide, but it's the best one I could find. Uh, now, this is a model that's currently on display in a museum in Caesarea. When we went to Caesarea, we saw this, and it is this huge table, and it has this whole model laid out on it. Now, understand now, and see the harbor there. We'll talk about that the next time, but because the harbor was, a, a, it was an absolute engineering marvel. Uh, and I've got a satellite photo that will overlay with what it looked like then and what it looks like now. And it's, it's just, for me, it's just amazing. But I want you to look at, in slide two, Herod's palace. Uh, long after Herod's death, uh, in the first century, the palace was used as a praetorium. Now, praetorium was, well, it housed the praetor, <laughs> which was the governor uh, of the area. It was a place where when the king visited, and we'll see that in the next chapter where King Agrippa comes, uh, that's where they stayed. It was also where the temple guard, or not the temple guard, but the palace guard stayed, the Praetorian guard. So we, and remember back in Jesus's day, they took him to Pilate, who was at the Praetorium in Jerusalem. So anyway, this was used as a headquarters for the people that were the governing elite, really. Uh, and this, the palace, it was an amazing piece of architecture. It was a huge rectangular building. It was bordered with rows of columns all around. And it, it was built, actually, it partially extended out over the water. Herod had figured out, had gotten the technology to be able to pour concrete underwater. And, and he, therefore, he built out into the Mediterranean Sea. And it, just fabulous works of architecture here. Uh, and he, he spared nothing with this structure. It included a 118 foot long by 60 foot wide freshwater swimming pool that was built upon the bedrock uh, and the palace surrounded it. <laughs> this is, is amazing. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. Uh, so the pool, as well as the city's water supply, was fed by an aqueduct. The Romans actually built it. It was above ground, this aqueduct that came down from Mount Carmel. More than 20 miles away, it carried fresh water to the city. And so, again, engineering marvel. Uh, in slide three, just inland from Herod's palace, uh, there's a beautiful amphitheater. 
this was partially, it, it since has been partially restored, and now it's a popular concert venue in Israel. Uh, it seats about 4,000 people. It did then, and it does now. They, uh, the, I came across a number of photos where they had the big, uh, you know, the speaker deals behind on the stage and all of that. Uh, decided not to use those as it's trying to keep it as authentic as possible. But it's a popular venue now because Caesarea is only, it's probably a 40-minute drive from Tel Aviv, the biggest city in, in the nation. Uh, it's just north of Tel Aviv a little way. So anyway, let's come up to modern day. Slide four is a photograph from the vantage point of standing on top of the theater, looking out to the palace ruins and to the Mediterranean Sea beyond. Uh, just thought this was a great photograph. I want you to look down at the base at, at, at where all of the, the, the bleachers, uh, they all look down on this circular area at the bottom. That was a place where I stood uh, a couple of times, a couple of trips to Israel. I stood there and this whole passage in Acts 24, Acts 25 just came to, it just came flooding back to me because that's where Paul would have been standing when he was being examined and addressing uh, the different governors, because Governor Felix and then Festus and then uh, dealing with King Agrippa. Uh, so this is it's a significant place. So uh, note the ruins that are extending out past the shoreline here. Herod, uh, he was, a, again, a brilliant architect. In slide five, uh, we're swinging around now, looking at it from the coast looking in, uh, and, and it shows, look at the, the, the under the, the words Herod's palace, you'll see a rectangle there. That's the remnants of the pool that we're talking about. Again, this palace was built around this pool. Now in slide six, I darkened the background a little bit uh, so that you can see the proximity of these two buildings to one another. Uh, the amphitheater in the background, Herod's palace in the foreground. So the question is, is why are these two places important? What makes them significant? Well, as I mentioned, Herod's palace is being used as a praetorium. As we'll see in the text here in chapter 24, when Felix chooses not to decide Paul's case, he puts him under house arrest. And guess where he's going to stay? For the next two years, the praetorium would be Paul's home. That's where he would live. Uh, and I've got to say, you know, if, if you're going to put me under house arrest and say, oh, well, you're under house arrest. Now you get the, the palace by the beach. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one with the pool. Yeah, okay. I'll sign me up. I, I'm willing. I, I guess I'll go suffer there. Well, and that was what God had, again, he ordained that Paul would have this for a place, that, and we'll look at that in a bit, where he would be set aside. And, and it's fantastic the way that the Lord sets this stuff up. So secondly, the text doesn't tell us specifically, again, it's largely assumed that the theater was the place of the judgment seat. Uh, they don't talk about the judgment seat in chapter 24 specifically, but in chapter 25 they do when Paul is before Festus and Agrippa. In the judgment seat, if you look at slide seven here, I want you to catch the scene. Uh, the Romans, they were very public in their handling of judicial matters. And Felix was known to be ruthless. <laughs> he was a bad dude. So when Paul was brought before the authorities, uh, we see here in slide seven that he would have stood at the bottom platform or the stage of the theater. Now the white circle here, you couldn't see it from the other vantage point that I showed you. The white circle shows where the judgment or the bema seat would have been. Now, again, I clearly remember standing here and looking up at that and just thinking, oh my goodness. I mean, it was one of those kind of mind-blowing things for me because I was just reliving this stuff and, and thinking this is like the spot where, where the Apostle Paul stood and where these guys were, you know, coming at him and, and all of the stuff that was going on. So it's an amazing scene. And I, that's why I want to go into it. And I show you these slides because I want you to have a visual of where these things actually took place. They're not just Bible stories. These are real people, real places, real events, and, and they build my faith when I look at them and I, and I get sort of a comprehensive view of what's going on. Imagine it for a minute, especially when Paul is there with Governor Felix and then Governor Festus, as I mentioned, King Agrippa and Bernice, his wife. They would be sitting there on their throne. Imagine the robes. All of the colors, the feathered plumes, all of the soldiers, all the powerful, prominent men of the city. 
All of it assembled there as they examined this man. The point of all of it is all the power, all the pomp, the circumstance, all the unbelievable beauty of the amphitheater was done in order to intimidate anybody who came into that setting and was forced to stand before it. What it created, folks, was not that Paul was standing before a man. He was standing before Rome, and they made sure to impress in that way. That's the scene in Caesarea, as Paul is now brought to appear before Felix. Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders in a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So it's likely that the elders who came with Ananias, he's not going to bring the Pharisees with him. He's a Sadducee. They don't believe in the resurrection. They were pretty jacked up with Paul when he appeared before them in Jerusalem. So he brings his buddies down. uh, And that's part of the, they were the ruling religious party at that time. And so they come down to Caesarea to testify against Paul. But they bring Tertullus. He's, He's described as an orator. Now, he's a, he's, he's, what he is is a prosecuting attorney. Uh, he's been specifically trained in the, in, to present verbal arguments for his clients. Now, the Greek word for orator, it's the word rhetor, and it's where we get the word rhetoric. And this guy is definitely full of rhetoric. I mean, this guy knows how to pour it on. We'll see that in a minute. Now, understand something else, too. The Sanhedrin had turned Judaism into a money-making machine. They had turned this it into a very profitable enterprise. So we have to assume, because these men and because the, the council, they were exceptionally wealthy, and, we, and they were quite wealthy, that with that in mind, we've got to assume that this Tertullus guy is the best that money can buy. They have gotten, <laughs> they've gotten themselves a good attorney. And so... And we don't know if Tertullus was a Roman citizen or if he was a Jew, but it's very obvious from the text that he is very well skilled and very knowledgeable in the laws of both Rome and Israel and the Jews. So, uh, and remember, this is also, this is a legal proceeding. So when Luke tells us they gave evidence to the governor against Paul, he's referring to that part of the proceeding because as we'll see here, there isn't, there's zero real evidence to give. Uh, verse 2, and when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, seeing that, in, that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Oh my goodness, this guy is pouring it on. <laughs> this is, I'll tell you what, this is pure, unadulterated flattery. Uh, there is no question. I mean, he is just, he's, this guy, he knows how to schmooze. So <laughs> what's interesting is the Jews hated Felix. They could not stand him. <laughs> he was a cruel man. As Brian pointed out last week, he and his brother Paulus, they grew up as slaves in Rome. They were slaves for a woman by the name of Antonia, and she was the mo- mother of Claudius Caesar. So Paulus and Felix and Claudius, they were, they played together as when they were boys. And when Claudius became Caesar, he freed these two men, gave them prominent positions in the empire. Uh, he favored Paulus. I'm not going to go into the details on that, but he favored him, gave him a better job. He, he kind of sticks Felix in the backwaters because Palestine was not known as a major province. And so he gives Felix a job there. Now, Interesting thing about Felix is he was the first man in Roman history to be born a slave and then end up being a procurator. Uh, I have trouble with that word, procurator. Uh, But uh, even though he was put in this position by Claudius, he's a scoundrel. He is truly, uh, he was known for hunting people down. Anybody that opposed him for any reason, he would hunt them down. He would send his soldiers out, hunt them down and crucify them. And there were a lot of crosses in the land under Felix. Very hard men. Uh, interesting, I came across a, a quote by a guy by the name of Tacitus. He was a Roman historian, the first century. Uh, he wrote that, that, that Felix reigned with royal might, but with the mind of a slave. Interesting. Verse 4, so nevertheless, uh, Tertullus going on here, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Yeah, keep it going. (laughs) And I have to wonder if Felix's schmooze meter was pegged at this point. It's like, 
we can just get to the point, you know. <laughs> Maybe he gave Tertullus a look, like, or he, <laughs> I would have been rolling my eyes at that point, but he needed to move on. Tertullus gets the cue and he says, okay, I'm not going to be tedious. I'm not going to continue to pour it on. I'm going to get to the point here. And he tells him he's going to be brief, which is probably a good idea. Felix is not the kind of guy you want to tick off. So verse 5, he says, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Sounds pretty evil. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, not wanting to judge him according, and wanting to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him. So if you have been studying in the book of Acts and you actually read or you were here during our studies in the book of Acts, you see that he is piling it on. And this is just it's a pack of, of, of half-truths and lies. So interestingly, though, he does, and up until now, remember Claudius Lysias, he, he couldn't figure out what to charge Paul with. Send him to the governor. I don't know. First he tries the Sanhedrin. They, they don't charge him with it. And so he, Paul has never been charged with anything. So now this guy, Tertullus, he begins to level charges against Paul, and he makes three of them. Uh, two of them are political, and one of them is religious. The first accusation he makes uh, is in verse 5, where Tertullus, he declares that Paul is a plague. Uh, it's, it's the same word that's used for pestilence in, if you're a King James guy or girl. Uh, and what he's saying is this guy, he's a pestilent man because pestilence spreads. And, and it's a, he's a pestilent man. He has an infectious ideology and he's spreading it around and causing dissension among the Jews around the, the whole world, he says. Now, this is a very clear tactic by Tertullus, because he knows that the one thing that Roman officials, they have little tolerance for, they were very sensitive to troublemakers. And he's saying, this guy's a troublemaker. And anyone that was viewed as a person that stirred up the people or created dissension, they would be seen as an enemy of the state. And that's the picture that Tertullus is trying to paint for Felix. The second accusation he makes uh, it's also in verse 5. He accuses Paul of being the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Now, you have to understand, this guy is skilled. And, and, and he is, he, he's kind of a slimy guy. But he knows how to get Felix's attention. And he knows how to pull at this man. And that's what he's doing. Uh, his tactics are not lost upon Felix or Paul. Uh, remember, at this time, there was significant political and social upheaval in the land of Israel under Roman rule. And so he's playing it from that angle. Now, the language he uses in describing Paul as a ringleader, that would have immediately gotten Felix's attention because he's deliberately creating a negative connotation in Felix's mind. Because Rome didn't like ringleaders of any kind or anyone that threatened to affect the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. That was a big deal. And, if, and that was a sort of a blanket law. If you were threatening the Pax Romana, you were gotten rid of. And the Romans, Romans dealt very harshly with people like that. And so again, he's trying to create the illusion. He's trying to create a word picture in Felix's mind that this is this guy, Paul. He's a ringleader. He's a plague. You got to be careful for him. So, and it, by the way, too, because of all of the upheaval in the land of Israel, the Romans were very sensitive, especially in this province, because there had been so much trouble from the people. And also, the, we looked at not long ago, the sect of the Sicarii, the, the, the dagger men who were going around assassinating people. That was because they were upset with Felix. They didn't like the way that he ruled because he ruled in a cruel manner. Notice too that Tertullus refers to Christianity uh, and when he does that, he refers to it as the sect of the Nazarenes. He's drawing Felix's attention to that Paul is not only a ringleader, but he's the ringleader of a religion that is not recognized in the Roman Empire. This is a big deal. It was illegal to establish a new religion within the empire without Rome's approval. Now, Judaism was an established religion and it was recognized by the state. They were allowed to practice it. But what Tertullus is saying is, don't think about Christianity this way. Uh, it's, it's the sect of the Nazarene. It doesn't have anything to do with Judaism. He's trying to clearly delineate between the two. 
Uh, he says, this is a sect on its own. It, it's, it's one that's not recognized within the empire. This is a dangerous, serious charge that he's making against the Apostle Paul at this point. Paul understands it immediately, and he understands this is probably the most dangerous charge that he's making because he spends the bulk of his defense addressing the same issue. We'll see that in a minute. So Tertullus begins his case against Paul in order to gain Felix's attention, yes. But he knows that he has a really weak case. He knows that. And so what he does is, is he speaks, just all of his accusations are spoken in generalities. There's no eyewitnesses, no corroborating evidence, there's nothing, no evidence at all to support the accusations, the allegations that he's making. But he's doing what any high-priced attorney would do when you recognize that you have a really weak case. He's, he's, he is working it. He is playing it. He knows he doesn't have any witnesses. He doesn't have any facts that would, prov- that would prove guilt on Paul's behalf. So he deals with Felix not on the basis of the facts, but on the basis of emotion. And that's clearly what he's doing here. He's appealing to Felix's emotions, principally the emotion of fear. What he's saying here, and I'll paraphrase, he's saying, if you let this guy loose, he's going to cause problems for you, (coughs) for you, and for Rome, and you need to be very concerned about it, Felix. He's not being blunt, but that's exactly what he's saying between the lines. He is playing on this guy's fear. He wants Felix to have second thoughts about letting this guy loose. Then he goes on and he makes his final charge in verse 6 where he accuses Paul of attempting to profane the temple in Jerusalem. So at that point he closes his argument. He, he has a series of lies and presumptions. Lies about Claudius Lysias uh, violently taking Paul from their very benevolent hands. <laughs> we saw, I mean, and Luke gives a, a very clear narrative that they drug him out and they were just kicking the daylights out of him when the Romans came up and rescued him. But he paints this picture for Felix that they were just trying to do their civic duty. <laughs> Judge Paul, according to Jewish law, all of it was done in a calm and orderly manner. You're, you're, <laughs> Mr. Governor, you know, we were good. And then Claudius, he came and violently ripped him out of our hands. It was totally the opposite. They were trying to beat him to death. Uh, they were the ones that were showing violence, not, <laughs> not the Romans. What they probably didn't realize, too, at this point was, remember, uh, and, and Brian shared with us last week, that when, when Claudius Lysias, when the commander in Jerusalem, sent Paul away, he sent a letter with him. And in that letter, he very clearly stated, I find nothing to charge this guy over. Felix has got this letter, and the Jews don't have any knowledge that he has this letter, so they're trying to just do this whole jacked up presentation. And I imagine Felix kind of standing there, if he had a beard, he was probably stroking it like, hmm, very interesting, you know. And so he's no dummy. He understands what's going on. He also knows that these guys are professionals at working it, and that they're going to manipulate him any way that they can. So interesting. He's a harsh, he's an evil man, but uh, he's not a dummy. He knew Jewish and Roman law very well, had to have been aware of way more than what they realized. Verse 9, and so the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So, and, and this kind of blows my mind. It's one thing to lie. It's another thing to be a recognized authority on spiritual matters and lie. And that's what this guy does, or these guys do. They, they show no conscience at all. Yeah, that's right. Everything that Tertullus is saying, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you need to really judge this guy. Sickeningly, the Jews go along with every lie that Tertullus presents to Felix. Verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So Paul knew that the facts of his case were in his favor. He, he's, not a, he's a very intelligent, very highly educated man. Uh, and he's, so he is happy to speak in his own defense. He doesn't need a lawyer at this point. It's not like in the United States where if you don't have a lawyer, you're kind of sunk going in. He speaks for himself and he just addresses Felix. And, and something that is notably absent in his presentation is any attempt to flatter the governor. He's not going to try to schmooze this guy. He, where Tertullus is building his case on emotion and on 
opinion. Paul is standing on the fact. So he's essentially saying, do the math, (laughs) Felix. I've been here for five days. It was a two-day trip to get here. Uh, That leaves five days from the time I arrived in Jerusalem to worship. And part of that time, I was in custody. There's no way that I had time to carry these things out. There's simply not enough time to organize and carry out all that I'm being accused of. The timing just doesn't add up. And so he points that out to Felix going in. On top of that, these things, they're not things that were done six months ago where you're trying to round up witnesses. Oh, well, they moved. Sorry, we've got to try to figure that out. No, these are things that happened last week, the accusation. And so if there were witnesses, he's essentially saying, you would be able to produce them. This is not rocket science. They didn't have rockets then. But he's saying, this isn't, this isn't something that you, I mean, this isn't high education stuff. It's just really kind of meat and potatoes, common sense. You can't do it. Verse 12, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. So he's saying, look, Tertullus can tell you these things all day long. However, opinions aren't going to decide this matter. Where's the proof? Again, he, he sees that Tertullus is appealing to Felix on the basis of fear. And Paul stands on the facts. There is no evidence. Everybody knew it even the Jews, even Tertullus. So now he gets to the core of his defense. And he first, this is really interesting to me. He gives a spiritual defense for the Jews who were there. And then he concludes with a legal defense for the benefit of Felix. So let's look at that. In verse 14, he says, but this, but this I confess to you that according to the way, that's the name for the early church, according to the way, which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. So Paul addresses their accusation uh, that he's promoting an illegal religion. Uh, and making it clear that he's not abandoned the God of his fathers or the law and the prophets. The other thing about this, regardless of what the Roman governor would or wouldn't decide in his case, a spiritual question was being debated in this trial, which the governor really, I don't believe he could understand it. Uh, but all of the Jews who were there would know. The real debate here was about whether or not Paul was an apostate Jew who deserved to be executed according to the scripture. We talked about that in an earlier study when they drug him out onto the Temple Mount. What a serious offense it was to take a Gentile behind the Sorg, behind the the wall of separation on the Temple Mount. That was a big deal. And that was the only time that, that Rome allowed the Jews to execute someone as if they were caught doing that. So Paul is getting right back to that point and right back to that defense because it was initially a spiritual accusation that was made against him. The high priests, the Sadducees, they actually believed uh, that the mob had done the right thing when they tried to beat Paul to death, when they drug him out of the temple. Those among them actually believed, obviously the Sadducees were a very liberal sect, and there were some that probably didn't even believe in God, but they felt that divine justice was interrupted when the Roman troops took him out of their hands. That's why they say that he violently took him out of our hands. We were trying to do what we thought was right. And in their minds, they did. They were because that's how they were oriented. They totally rejected any aspect of the gospel, any aspect of Jesus as Messiah, any aspect of Paul having a bona fide ministry from God. So his statement here is about his faith in his answer to that spiritual charge. His remarks are directed to the religious leaders and not to the governor at this point. And what they heard him say was something like this. I'll paraphrase. He says, I have already judged myself. I've examined my own motives and tested my actions against the word of God. And my conscience is clear. I've not turned away from true Judaism. I've not abandoned the God of my fathers. I've not forsaken the scriptures. My faith is strong and I'm fully prepared to stand before God as well as all of you and will, as all of us will do in the coming judgment. He concludes his defense. He says, in light of all of this, the resurrection and the coming judgment, I strive to maintain a blameless or guilt-free conscience before God and men. 
So he's answering the spiritual charge that the Jews had made against him. Now, I want to also note Paul's humility here as opposed to the attitude of his accuser. Uh, having a clean conscience before God was extremely important to him. Should be extremely important to us as well. I mean, there, I'll tell you, and I would love to just shoot off and hit rabbit trail on what it is to deal with our conscience and aspects of that are fallen. But I, oh, I'm, I'm so tempted. No, I, I don't have time. Anyway, suffice it to say that Paul gives a defense uh, for the charges that the Jews had brought against him. Now, after defending himself theologically, Paul returns now to defending himself legally before the Roman governor by saying in verse 17, now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Now, this is probably a reference to remember the offering that he and the men brought from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem. Verse 18, and in the midst of of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Where are they? Again, he's uh, appealing to him on the basis of the facts. Or or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless... It is for this one statement which I cried out, and I think, I had, to be fair, I think he's poking them here. <laughs> I cried out among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now he's talking to the Sadducees. <laughs> they don't believe in a resurrection. So, but once again, he asserts that their accusations are baseless, without foundation. There's nothing there. All they would be able to actually accuse him was that Paul had cried out concerning the resurrection of the dead. I'm, I, I'm being judged by you this day. That was the only thing that he knew that these guys had a beef with that. But in other words, the things in their accusation that were criminal were not true. The things in their accusation that were true were not criminal. So there's nothing to hold him with. Verse uh, 22, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So Felix knew the right thing to do. That's why Luke tells us in verse 22 that he had more accurate knowledge of the way Uh, which was, again, the name for the early church. However, rather than do the right thing and set Paul free, he knew that, very similar to the commander in Jerusalem, that if he did that, he would be angering the Jews, and he wanted to curry their favor. Uh, Felix chooses, at this point, to kick the can down the road. And if you understand that figure of speech, kicking the can down the road is where you're saying, well, I will deal with it later, because... And in a very real sense, if you kick that can down the road you're gonna, and you keep walking, you're going to come up on it again and again and again. So, But that's what Felix does. He essentially chickens out. He says, I'm not going to decide this now. I don't want to take off the Jews and I don't want to, by letting you go, and I don't want to deal with it. So you know what? You're under house arrest. And that's what he does. He orders Paul to be held under house arrest with, with limited freedom to come and go and spend time with his friends, which was very generous of him. Interesting, too, there is no record of Claudius Lucius ever visiting Caesarea during Paul's stay there. We're going to stop there for this morning. I want to take a look at some things as we wrap up. Three things. So the first is this. Don't flatter me. <laughs> well, most forms of flattery are not as blatant as that of Tertullus. I mean, his is pretty obvious. There's a fine line that, between words that flatter and words that encourage, words that affirm. It's important for us to know the difference. And look at three things, flattery versus encouragement. Here we go. The first is flattery is motivated by what I want for me. Encouragement is motivated by what I want for you. The Cambridge Dictionary defines flattery as the act of praising someone often in a way that is not sincere because you want something from them. That's flattery, blatant flattery. That's exactly what Tertullus is doing with Felix. I want something from you. I want you to judge against this man. I don't have any basis for it, but, you know, hey, I'm going to flatter you. I'm going to, you know, just, like I said, I'm going to schmooze you so I get what I want. On the other hand, encouragement is motivated by humility, and the aim is to build someone up. Whole different thing. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul admonishes, he says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. So the next thing I want to look at with regard to flattery is flattery is about control. Encouragement is about truth. Big difference. Proverbs 28.23 tells us, one who rebukes a person will afterward find more favor than one who flatters with the tongue. True story. Think about it. In John chapter 8, we see Jesus with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, in the very act, by the way. And they they make that clear. There she is thrust down before him, the men standing there with rocks in their hands. And what does he say to her? He does not give her a bunch of empty platitudes. Oh, hon, it's okay. Oh, you know, you probably had trauma during potty training. That's why you're here. You know, he doesn't do that. He, he's, he's very clear. He, he is full of grace and truth. He says, where are your accusers? Uh, they're gone. And then he says something very interesting. He says, go and leave your life of sin. He tells her the truth. Far better than, than just blowing smoke. He speaks the truth in love. Far better than. The third thing we look at flattery about with regard to flattery is that flattery builds pride in the recipient. Encouragement builds strength. Now, a a proper biblical alternative to flattery is not to refrain from saying anything affirming for fear of puffing someone up. When I was a young Christian, that happened to me uh, a number of times. It's like, oh, you don't want to say anything nice because you don't want to puff them up. Then therefore they have their reward. And it's like, well, come on. Aren't we to affirm one another in love? You know, telling somebody, hey, that was good, a good job, or praise the Lord for what you did or, or how you acted or whatever it is, there is real mileage in that in the kingdom. I'm not going to worry, worry about whether or not you get puffed up. I'm not there to puff you up. I'm there to encourage. I want to build strength in you with that affirmation. And genuine affirmation is necessary. It's a necessary good. We should practice it. You don't know what somebody's week has been like. You don't know what happened when they got that phone call, what struggles they're going through. And to simply affirm one another, I'll tell you what, it's the juice that the kingdom runs on. It is really, really important. I love that when I hear report after report of when people walk through the door of this church, they say, I can't believe how loving you are towards one another and affirming you. Keep it up, gang. That is the right attitude to have. We're not here to just flatter people with useless words. We want to be able to build one another up. Proverbs 12, 25, one of my favorite Proverbs says this. It says, anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Very simple. The next thing I want to look at, <laughs> I, was, I, I thought about this. I was going to talk about procrast- procrastination, but I decided to put it off until next time. <laughs> Are you kicking a can down the road? Paul's trial was not the only thing that Felix put off. Uh, I would love to have gotten through the whole chapter, but I thought, oh Lord, I've got way too much information here. I just need to cut it off for a few chapter, a few verses before the end of the chapter. But you know, what he goes on to do is to put off making a decision after he comes to a knowledge of Christ. He has a working knowledge already of the way. We're told that in the text. And then he actually sends for Paul, and we'll see that next time, where he says, come on, tell me more. Uh, me and my wife, Drusilla, yeah, tell us more. What's going on with this whole Jesus thing? And then he becomes fearful and he says, I don't want to hear any more about it. I'll talk to you later about it. He kicks the can down the road again. But I'll tell you what, if you do that spiritually, you are literally playing with fire. If God is, is weighing on your heart that you need to give your life to, to Jesus, then you need to do that and you need to do that because there will come a time. It gets easier, folks. I'm telling you, it gets easier when we put things off. It gets easier to put it off again and again. <laughs> I'll share a story with you. I accidentally unplugged our freezer this last week. <clears throat> and Stacy came and said, there's water running out from under the freezer. What's up with that? I went, uh-oh, I know, I know what I did. Uh-oh. I unplugged the cord accidentally. It, it thought it was something else. Anyway, it reminded me of a story from when my kids were teenagers. My daughter, <laughs> had, she had a boyfriend, and, and I, you know, he was okay. Probably a guy that I would look at as not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but um, <laughs> he, I had an old house, and it had this two-story carriage house behind the, the main house. It was all stamped pin size. It was a really cool building, and they had the twist light switches, you know, the, they're the old antique ones, you know. And, and it, I had different rooms in this carriage house, and I had put my freezer in one of them. 
and there wasn't a plug in it. I mean, the house was built before they had plugs. It was a very old house, a cool place. Anyway, uh, so I had wired the thing into the light socket with the plug in and ran a cord down to the freezer. Well, my daughter's boyfriend went in there one day and he decided he didn't like that light being on and he turned off the freezer. Well, about a week later, I'm sitting out in the yard in a lawn chair. We had company over and and, and I, I kind of, what's that smell? And I was like, it smelled really rank. <laughs> so I started investigating. I got in and it was one of those freezers that you open the top like that. I went in and I opened the top and, and there was like this goo. <laughs> And these big black flies swarmed out in my face. And I was like, oh my goodness, the freezer. I don't know how long that freezer's been unplugged, but it's been unplugged a while. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what do I do? Old house, narrow doorways, had to turn that thing on its side to get it in there, take the top off and all that. Uh, this is just going to be a massive pain. <laughs> and then I went, I know. And I walked over and I turned that light back on. And I froze the goo. <laughs> And I froze the flies. And I, I shared this. I was doing a Sunday morning service. In the, it was in the late 90s, I think. I don't remember. Anyway, I was teaching at my church. And I used it as an example. And I, and I told then I said, and that was eight years ago. I've been kicking that can down the road. Paying a power bill on a freezer full of frozen goo and frozen flies for eight years. Guy came up to me after the services. I'm going to pay for that to get taken care of, Pastor John. (laughs) Anyway, within a week it was gone. My point is, if it's spiritual matters, do business with the Lord and don't put it off. Don't kick that can down. Maybe it's not about (laughs) the issue of your eternal security, but the Spirit of God is bringing that thing that you've been putting off to your mind as I speak. I don't know what it is. Seriously, folks, maybe it's that physical symptom that's so frightening you don't want to look at it. I did that too. I had physical symptoms. My jaw hurt a few times significantly. Before a year ago, I literally dropped dead behind our car at the beach. I put it off. It's that. Maybe it's a relationship that you know needs healing and it requires you to put something into that. Perhaps it's a debt or debts that are going unpaid. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know that it's really important not to kick that can down the road. Unfortunately, a good deal of the time, it will come back to bite us. Here's some advice. Ask God for the strength to handle it, whatever it is. Step out in faith. Trust him for that thing. And you may very well be surprised at the outcome. Most of the time when I have done that, I've realized coming out the other side, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Not as big as it got in my mind. Do business with him, do business with whatever that thing is. Third thing, and we'll finish with this, is life happens between the lines. When Felix refused to rule on his case and placed Paul under house arrest, I hardly think that Paul thought, hey, great, now I'll have a couple of years for Luke and I to sit and write all these things down. I believe that, and the Bible doesn't tell us, but I do believe that because Luke was there with Paul, I do believe that that was when Paul wrote the gospel or when Luke wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. It's one literary unit we separated in our Bibles, but he wrote the whole thing, the account that he was giving to this guy Theophilus that he knew. Point is, life happened. Paul goes, he thinks that, you know, until Jesus appears to him, says, I'm sending you to Rome. He thinks the whole thing in, in Jerusalem was probably a big waste of time, a lot of trouble. And then now... Felix says, ah, I'm going to put it off. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do anything with you, Paul. And he keeps putting it off, keeps putting it off until he, Felix ends up ticking off Rome and Nero by that time, not Claudius anymore, his buddy, but Nero is on the throne now. And Nero sends to have him come back to Rome, puts this guy Festus in his place. Talk about that in another study. However, what's happening here is life is happening to Paul between the lines. <laughs> he didn't, He didn't know how long he would be in Caesarea. He didn't know if it'd be a week or 10 years. He had no idea. But we look at it from this perspective and we see that, and Luke intentionally tells us that Paul was free to have friends during his time in Caesarea. I think that's a significant statement. What a perfect time to chronicle the details of Paul's life and ministry. What an awesome time. Well, unless they were out laying by the pool. (laughs) But the point is, our lives happen between the lines. I'll tell you what, I have mentioned this before and I will mention it again. 
It is not the big, yeah, the big decision of our lives is, is to appropriate the work of Christ and the person to come to faith, to trust Christ, turn from the old life. That is huge. But in living our lives, living our lives between the lines, it's not the big monumental decision. It's those little decisions that you make every single day, day in, day out, week in, week out, that add up to a life. It's either a life that is well lived because it's lived uh, according to our, our great hero and, and Lord, or it's a life that's lived for this world and it's a waste. One or the other. But that's the way that it boils. That's the way that it settles out. Our lives are lived between the lines. And as we do that, as we understand that it's about the, the daily stuff, my prayer is that we grow in our relationship with him. My prayer is that we continue to see him working in our lives. My prayer is that we continue to be in a place that we can see that it's not just this circumstance or that, but that we see that God's design is in all of it. And as we do that, our lives are enriched. As we do that, I can have, even when I'm going through really tough stuff, I can have a settled peace in my heart because I know, I know that I know that I know that the Lord is in control. I know that he has this. I know that he is working for my good, even when it doesn't look like it or feel like it. And that builds my, my faith. It builds courage. It builds strength. It builds endurance. All of those things that we need to go through uh, when tight life gets tough. And if you're in a good place this morning, I praise God. If you're going through struggles this morning, understand what his will is for you. That as you hold that thing up to him, and then as you're obedient to carry out whatever it is that he's impressing upon you to do with that thing, or maybe it's to simply abide and just let time go by so that he can work, allow him to be the Lord in your life. We don't just call him Lord because it's a fancy religious thing to say. I want him to be the Lord in my life today and every day. That's his desire for our lives as well. That's how our lives are enriched. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for your, just for the grace that you pour out on our lives every day. Thank you, Lord, that, that your mercies are new every morning. We're so appreciative, Lord, of the fact that you are personal with us, that you care about the details of our lives. I pray for each one here, Father, each one within the sound of my voice, perhaps online, or uh, pray, Father, that that you would encourage us. Lord, deliver us from flattering speech. Help us to be people that are affirming, loving one another, building one another up, encouraging one another, because the days are evil. We don't just want to be around each other. We need each other so much. So we pray, Father, that you would accomplish that work in us today, that you would find hearts that are yielded, willing to cooperate with the work that you want to do. We love you. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, we amen.